Um, today we're in Mark chapter 2, and um, we're going to go, uh, we're going to start with verse 23, we're going to go into chapter 3 to verse 6. So let's read that and then we'll pray and we'll jump right in. This is verse 23 of chapter 2. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you not read what David said when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abithar the priest. And he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat. And also he gave to those who were with him. And he said to them, here's a really interesting phrase, or a couple interesting things in a row here. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Again, he entered the, the synagogue. We're now into chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man uh, was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, which is interesting uh, in and of itself, so, so that they, may, they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he, then he said to them all, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against, against him how to destroy him. Lord, I pray that you would lead us through this and guide us in this. Um, there's so much to learn here about you. And uh, so much. So This is a very rich passage, and I, I pray that you would help us to mine it, bring uh, some beautiful things out about you. Reveal yourself to us by your Holy Spirit um, through this passage. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would really reveal yourself to us here. Uh, please, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, the two episodes in a row here that we're going to look at Jesus um, together. We've been going through the book of Mark on Sunday mornings in order to watch Jesus. That's the idea. We're not trying to learn more about Jesus, or if we are, we're trying to learn more about Jesus so that we can learn Jesus. We can be with him, and we can imagine what it's like. Um, we're trying to get a feel of what kind of person that he is. Um, you know, what's, his, uh, what's the man's soul like? Have you thought of Jesus in those terms? What's his soul like? What is he like? Um, is he a patient man? Is he whimsical, or is he more serious? What kind of things make him happy? And what kind of things trigger happiness in his heart? What gets him excited? What kind of things make him who he is? Make him the kind of person that he is? And this passage, um, I think for guys like Paul and I, this passage is really special <laughs> for us because here, uh, well, this should jump out to us. Let's read verse 5. Look at, look at verse 5 of chapter 3. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out and it was restored. Um, in this passage, Jesus is angry. But I need to 
qualify that. He wasn't just angry, he's good and angry. He's very angry. In fact, the word in the Greek here is orge, and it's, it, is, it is perhaps the strongest word in the Greek for a level of anger. In fact, a, a more literal translation is the word wrath. This is like Old Testament kind of anger welling up in Jesus. In other words, it doesn't mean that Jesus just got annoyed or miffed or even just kind of agitated or lost his patience. It actually is a strong word on an epic scale to mean that he was, so he was filled with wrath. He was that angry. Um, this, is an, this is an emotion. This is kind of a, in our society, this is a shunned emotion. This is an emotion that's not popular to have. And yet, you know, guys like, like me, I, 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 get, I get angry. Uh, and Dave, Dave too. Dave's like, okay, me too. We, we've got a handful of angry, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I grew up and there was typically, and still is for the most part, always some kind of a storm going on in my chest. Something going on in there. It's very rare for me that I feel peace. And I try to cherish those moments, when those fleeting moments when they come. Anger is something that I understand and something that I've been trying to put a stop to my entire life, assuming that it's bad. When I get angry, I go, bad anger, stop it, bad Christian. And that usually just makes me more angry. I should get some, some amens and some hoot and hollers here. You should be like, preach, preach. Yeah. So anyway, for a guy like me, when I read this about Jesus, I don't see him floating into a room. I don't see him you know, impervious to what's going on around him. When I read this about Jesus, it sparks from, it, it gets my attention for a guy like me. Jesus is angry, and then when I dig a little bit into that word, and I find the word orge, and it means to be wrathful, I, I go, ooh, okay, what's this all about? What's happening here? Um, now, with that in mind, here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it again, and I want you to employ your imagination when I read this again, I want you to imagine the scene in your, in your mind's eye. Here you go. Mark is telling us that Jesus is angry on an epic scale. It says he entered the synagogue. Picture the scene. Go ahead, close your eyes, picture the scene. What did it look like? What kind of people were there? What were the smells? What did it sound like? Can you, can you see it in your mind? And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him. Interesting that they at this point know about Jesus. That he's, when he enters into a room, he's not going to go to the most popular person. He's not going to go to the most well-connected person. He's not going to go to the, with the person with the deepest pockets. He's going to be attracted to magnetically the person who needs him the most. And they know there's a guy with a weathered hand and what's Jesus going to do? Picture it in your mind. And he says to the guy, sure enough... Come here. And he said to them all, imagine it. He says to them all, he, he announces to this room, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill it? And they were silenced. Imagine it. Awkward silence. And then during that awkward silence, Jesus is just staring them down with wrath and anger in his eyes. Imagine it, him looking left and right, slowly at everyone there, to the point where Mark could later write, he was mad. 
And then he breaks the awkward silence by talking to the man, stretch out your hand. And as the man stretches it out, it's restored. Keep imagining, and the Pharisees, because of this incident, because of this provocation, the Pharisees, verse 6, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how they could destroy him. It's an intense scene, isn't it? It's an intense scene. Now are you getting the sense in your mind's eye, you can open your eye now, Now are you getting the sense in your mind's eye or in your gut? Are you feeling it? Are you feeling the tension in the room? Are you feeling the awkwardness? Are you feeling the sense of confrontation? Are you feeling the sense of, you know, when when two people get in an argument where you don't know what to do? You're kind of stuck in the crossfire. Can you feel all that going on? So because of that, I want to center this entire study this morning on Jesus' anger uh, in verse 5 because I think it's the key to unlocking what Mark is trying to say in, here and show us about Jesus. I think this is a key to him unlocking what he's saying. I think a great pra- place to start, it begs a few questions. The, with the, um, when the text, for those of you that want to learn to study the Bible on your own, pay attention to the questions that the text naturally evokes within your gut, within your mind. Those aren't accidents. You're not weak in your faith because you don't immediately know what's happening. Actually, Mark and the the authors, the text, the Holy Spirit is probably trying to evoke some questions in you and lead you down a path. The first thing you've got to ask when you read about this level of anger is, why is he so angry? Right? What's got him so angry? Why, and not just that angry, Epic scale, wrathful kind of angry. Why? Why that kind of emotion? Well, what these two episodes, what about these two episodes? The disciples in the grain field plucking the heads off of the grain so they can eat. And this incident in the synagogue. What is it about these two episodes that triggers this explosion of emotion within Jesus? We're going to learn three things this morning. We're going to learn what he's so angry about. We're going to learn why that makes him so angry. (laughs) And we're going to see how he's claimed to come and make it all right. He's going to make it all better again. So first, let's find out. Let's do a little digging. Let's think a little bit. Let's turn this over in our minds, in our imagination. And let's figure out why he's so angry. And I think it might be a deeper reason than than what we may expect. Um, We need to start by observing that both of these episodes are about the Sabbath. We're going to do some fair... Uh, study into what that means and what the Sabbath is today. Jesus was getting negative attention in both of these episodes from the religious leaders and the Pharisees because of his of two violations, you could say, of the Sabbath day, the Sabbath law. In the first episode, Jesus' Jesus's disciples are hungry, and so they pick grain on the Sabbath, it's, and it's a violation because it's considered harvesting and work, and therefore they're working on the Sabbath, and that's against the rules. And in the second episode, Jesus violates the Sabbath law by seeking to administer miraculous medical help to somebody, if you would, trying to help somebody be better, and that's also considered work on the Sabbath. The religious leaders of Jesus' times had built so many interpretations around the idea of the Sabbath and and then went on to establish law, actual written laws and codes that they enforced on the community to adhere to around those interpretations of the Sabbath in Jesus' day so that really what Jesus is doing in both of these episodes is technically illegal. 
He's breaking the, the, the laws of his day. There were at least, what we know of, at least 38 or 39 activities that were banned on the Sabbath day in Jesus' day, but there were also other things that you were expected to do. They had, and they had legislated so much around this, they, they got so specific, they had laws for how far you could walk, how far you couldn't go. They went into detail about what someone could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, and they got extremely particular. They mapped this out to the millimeter. They really did. And the problem was that they had so much legislation in order for no one to violate the Sabbath that they actually succeeded in legislating away what the, Sabbath act- what the whole point of the Sabbath actually was. What is the idea behind a Sabbath? What does Sabbath mean? Well, the, the most um, simple or baseline translation for the word Sabbath is cease. That's what it means. To cease. Stop. Stop producing. Stop working. Stop doing, doing, doing. Stop climbing the ladder. Stop striving. Just stop. That's what it means. Sabbath. Stop. Or, and then it goes on. Stop and rest. Rest. The idea behind rest is to restore, to recover, repair, refresh, replenish, rehabilitate, recreate, recreate. And you do that, you do that with your strength so that you can go back out and go on about your life and your business and do your job from a place of refreshment and strength. You can get back after it again. In other words, shortly, to put it simply, we, are to, we humans are to work from rest that's the idea we are not to work from scarcity a sense of scarcity or depletion but from an abundance and from blessing that's the quality of which we are supposed to work from a place of rest that's the idea of a sabbath but the religious leaders had made so many rules around this whole idea of a Sabbath and so many regulations around it that they functionally end up deeming the heart of the Sabbath illegal. <laughs> and you can see that here. What Jesus, in fact, um, what's the word that they use, that Mark uses for the man's hand after Jesus heals it in verse 5? It was restored. Basically, Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. He restored something that was broken. They had legislated around it, but they lost the heart of the law. And I think Mark is telling us that that's why he's mad. That's why he's mad. They completely missed it. But that can't be all. It it actually goes deeper than that. I need to let you know, that's that's as far as a lot of people go here. Jesus was mad at those legalistic rule followers. Because they stopped somebody from being healed. I want to say yes. But this man? To me, this this, uh, epic level anger demands something more. And I think the text gives us something more. Why is he so mad? And here I want to suggest to you, this is point two. Here I want to suggest to you something very profound. There's actually more than, well, first of all, notice, there's actually more than one emotion uh, described in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. It says, and he looked around at them with anger, secondly, grieved, 
at their hardness of heart. Uh, you know, people say that anger is a secondary emotion. In other words, no one's angry just because they're angry. They're angry because of something. And in this case, in Jesus' case, he's angry because he's grieved. He's sad. He's deeply saddened. Deeply saddened. Why? Well, look at the verse. It tells us he's angry and grieved because something is wrong with their heart. He's grieved at the dullness of their heart. That's what the word actually means. Hardness can be translated dull. It's become blunted, numbed, calloused, hard. And that is, he's so grieved that he's wrathful, he's angry because of the level of how lost they are. There's something about the human heart. Here's, what, here's, my, here's, my, here's my theory about this today for you. There's something about the human heart, and this is what I want to play with, that takes a good thing and twists it. And here's where, where I think this is. I, I think the key for this is in, up in verse 27. Look at verse 27 of chapter 2. Look what Jesus says here. He clarifies something. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, before we proceed and unpack that a little bit, I have to, I have to build this out for you. We need to understand that in a sense, in the larger biblical story, We've been talking a lot about the, the, the meta story of the, of the Bible. In the larger biblical story, listen, whenever we're talking about the Sabbath, we are almost simultaneously talking about the whole law because the Sabbath is the entire point of the law. Did you know that? Think of the story. The law of Moses was designed to bring mankind back to Eden. To the point they, uh, so think of the story. There's Adam and Eve. They break God's law. The one, we'll get back into this in a second. The one, there's one law in the beginning. Don't eat of that tree. They break that law and they're, they're banished westward, out, or excuse me, eastward, east of Eden, out of, uh, out of God's presence. And you can make a case, a very strong case, that the rest of the narrative of the Bible is now bring, is God trying to bring man back. How does he do that? He does that through making a covenant with Abraham. And then you fast forward to the days of Egypt where he sets Israel free out of slavery and the tyranny of Egypt. And he brings them to Mount Sinai where he, makes, he, he um, proclaims the Decalogue, a, a law by which they can abide by. They quickly break that with the golden calf um, situation and by the time we get to Leviticus we find that more laws are added and the idea is is that God made several general laws that are almost human gut reactions of ethics of what we should live for you know don't murder don't lie um, worship God and God alone uh, you know, don't covet another man's stuff or another man's wife. Don't, you know, all of these things that kind of are, they're natural ethics, but sin is so pervasive. Israel, it doesn't take long for them to break every one of those. And so God says to Moses, now we're going to get a little bit more specific. <laughs> a little bit more specific. Have you tried reading Leviticus lately? It is extremely specific. But then by the time you get to Leviticus 16 and all the laws are described and in place, you've got this beautiful event called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where Israel is allowed 
to make sacrifice to make their way back west into this tabernacle that, that God instructed Moses to build, this tabernacle that is exactly to the exact replica of the, of the Garden of Eden. And there's the cherubim that are guarding God's presence in the Holy of Holies. I mean, it's just a, like the description of the Garden of Eden. And what's the high priest doing on Israel's behalf? And all of Israel, they're making their way back into God's presence. They do this in somewhat weekly, but on a larger scale, annually, as they make the certain sacrifices and all of these things. But there are all these laws involved. You have to wear this and don't wear this. Eat these things. Don't eat these things. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. Here's how far you can go. Don't go any further. I mean, and, and it's, in, it's in, in minute detail in the book of, in the book of Leviticus. It's always almost mind-numbing, but there is an incredible point. The overarching story is the law was a vehicle, a gift to mankind by which man can enter into the presence of God. You've heard the... Um, uh, in the Psalms, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? That is the plot of the entire Bible. Who shall ascend? Who is worthy enough? Who is holy enough? Who is clean enough to make their way back? Who can do it? And God says, ah. And all these ceremonial things happen to make, to make people come back into the presence of God. It's imperfect and yet genuine. It's a foreshadow of things to come. So the whole story is about entering back into that Sabbath Edenic rest for mankind. Let me just say, Sabbath, listen, everybody, Sabbath is what you were made for, period. Sabbath rests with God. That is what life and your existence is all about. For you to return to Eden, to make your way west again into God's presence and find everything your heart longs for. So when Jesus says in verse 27, let's go back to this, when he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, you could say the same thing about the law. The law was made for man, not man for the law. Do you hear what he's saying here? Do you know what that means? Jesus is saying that the law and the Sabbath is a gift, but you've made it into a chain. You've made it a burden. It's a gift, it's not a burden. And the most grievous effect that sin has on the human heart is that it distorts God's gifts into burdens, into enslavement, into drudgery. And it was never meant to be. The law was given as a gift from a loving God trying to bring us back. That's what the law is. We look at it as, oh, rules. Oh, something we have to deal with. Oh, you know, all of those types of things. It was given to heal. The law was given to restore. It was given to give a pathway back home. And, the ultimate, and ultimately, it was, it was given to bring us back into the presence of God. When we think about the law the law of God, what do we think about? We think burden, we think punishment, we think about God's curse, it's the way of making us sweat, it's not provision from a loving father yearning to get his kids back home safe, but it becomes rules of a tyrant bent on our punishment and suffering. That's typically what we think of when we think of the law of God. 
And that Jesus came to do away with the big bad law of God. It's not true. It's not true. He came to fulfill it. But nowhere in the Bible will you see Jesus saying the law is bad. Uh, and then you go even, Paul puts even more delicate theology into this. Saying the law is not bad, but it's our sin mixed with the law that makes it bad. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. That's exactly what he's getting at. To us, it's God saying, I'm going to restrict you. Isn't that what it feels like? Isn't that what our kids think, our teenagers? I'm going to restrain you. It's to hold you back. It's because I don't want you to reach your full potential. Right? The law of God and obedience to God, but this is the way it was meant to be. The law of God and obedience to the law of God is actually in the Bible the way to thrive. It's the way to find true, true happiness. It's to get everything your heart is longing for as a human being. God says, here's the law. Here's my way to be blessed. But sin in our hearts twists it into a burden. Jesus, is, Jesus basically, let me just sum up here. Jesus is showing us two approaches to the law of God. And one of those approaches makes him furious. Furious. There's two approaches to see the law of God on the Sabbath, and one makes him very upset. It's the narrative that says that what makes Jesus furious is the narrative that says God's law is not a gift to you, but actually a burden. It's something over us, it's something against us, it's something crushing us. You know what we're dealing with here? Now, we've, now if, you, if, you're, if you're tracking with me, now you understand that we're now dipping our toe into the subject of original sin. This is what it is. This is in all of us. It's in every heart. This goes all the way back to Genesis. Remember, Adam and Eve are there. One command in that garden, don't eat of that tree, for the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Why, why could they not eat of the tree? It wasn't because it was it was uh, taste bad or ba- had lots of calories or or uh, you know it was poison or something like that. In fact, the text doesn't tell us why. God does not explicitly say here's why. He just says don't. And I, the reason this sticks out to me as a dad is because right now Noble's like why. And right now it's appropriate to say first do what I say. The why doesn't matter. Just trust me. Do you see what's going on in the garden? God is saying, trust me. Trust me. Do it because I asked you. Because you know I'm a loving father who's trying to protect you. Just do it for that. Right? And, okay, what happens? The serpent comes along. And what does the serpent say? He says, if you eat of it, God knows that your eyes will be opened. Do you see what Satan's doing there? He's saying, what is he saying? You can't trust God. He's holding, he's holding something back on you. He doesn't, he's threatened by you. He doesn't want you to reach your full potential. He doesn't want you to be happy. happy. God does not have your best interest at heart. You see what it's doing? It's twisting something that was designed to be good and made out of love and trust 
those types of things. And he's twisting it, putting a new narrative on it that says actually it's because God's insecure. And he doesn't want you to reach your full potential. And this is him being a tyrant and holding you back. That's what's going on. It's the same lie. Sin in the human heart makes us treat the law of God not as a blessing, not as a gift, but as a burden and as a curse. It's the, it tweaks the way we see life. Now, this applies to all of us. Even, even if you might react in different ways to the law of God. Certainly there are people here that are more rule breakers and there are people here that are more rule keepers. I am of the tribe of the rule breaker, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Woo I have scars to prove it. Unfortunately, you know, we, Paul and I are of the tribe that we have to jump off the tall building to figure out that it hurts. Others of you just take the sign's words for it. But we figured it out. And then there's others that they, they follow the law to the T. And I want to show you something here that's really interesting, that this is something that's universal in the human heart, even though it might splinter and manifest itself in different ways. And I can show you from the text itself. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Okay, uh, look at these two, these two groups. The Pharisees went out, and immediately had counsel with the Herodians against that. You can easily read, read over that, but if you read any commentary or any scholar, they will say that they will tell you that this is one of the most remarkable verses because the Pharisees and the Herodians could not be more opposite of groups. In fact, these people, to say they hated each other, it would be an understatement. They wished each other dead. They would have lended a hand in making that wish come true if they found each other in a dark alley. These are the most brutal enemies, and yet Jesus gives them unity <laughs> in, in, a, in a way. This shows the whole spectrum of humanity. Um, the Pharisees were, so the Herodians, you know the, you know the history, um, the Roman Empire had enforced their own laws and rules over all the land, bringing their own pagan ideas and pagan styles of worship to even the most traditionalistic cultures, Jews being, Israel being one of them, Judea being one of those places. And the Pharisees felt in constant violation because their, um, their laws went straight against what the Roman Empire believed and the philosophy the Roman Empire took. And the Herodians were those um, of the house of Herod. Herod means king. Uh, the rulers, he was, um, he was uh, from the descendant of Esau. He considered himself Jewish. So he's kind of an insider, kind of out, but he's collaborating with the Roman government to bring Roman ideas and Roman laws there into the, into the uh, Jewish nation. And the Pharisees hated the Herodians because of this. They saw them as major compromi compromisers, weaklings. Were the, for the Pharisees, they were the traditionalists. They were fundamentalists. They were the, the rule followers. And yet here, they have a common enemy in Jesus. Why? What did it tell us? Well, it tells us because Jesus was, was telling both of them that they're lost. Both groups of people, he was saying that they were lost. You can see this all over. Jesus is great. Uh, one, um, one of the, I think, maybe the most stark illustration in John chapter 4. Jesus comes across a woman at the well, remember? And she had um, serial husbands, lots of lovers. She was... Um, Loosen her morals. She was a rule breaker. She was not following the rules. And what did Jesus tell her? He said, you're lost. You need the Messiah. 
And then a chapter right before that, in John chapter 3, Jesus runs into Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher, a law keeper. And what does he say? He says, you're lost, Nicodemus. You have to be born again. You're lost. Jesus is telling everybody that they're lost. Why? Because this idea of sin, even though it might splinter out and manifest itself in different ways, it's alive and well in all of our hearts. Our response to the burden of the law may be balking at it and shirking it like this woman. I know people that, and this is my case, uh, when I was younger, I I would try to keep the law, I would try to be moral, and I would try to be good, but then I would fail inevitably every time, and and then at that point it was like, well, forget it, I just can't do it. And I would just then break every law I could in an act of absolute uh, kamikaze. Because I was, but it was an act of, ah, frustrated, I can't do this. See? It's a burden to me. Even though I was a rebel, I was rebelling because the law was a burden and I, I resented it. I resented the moral code. I still have a heart, I still resent when people try to tell me to do something. Uh, last week, first time, someone uh, in front of, I was sitting in a room filled with people, and out loud, someone, a manager came and asked me to produce my vaccination card. It's fine. But in my heart, something happened. I did. I felt fire come. I, I felt angry. And the person acknowledged it and said, look, I'm sorry, I don't like doing this either. And I said, yeah, you know, I know you're just doing your job. I get it. But it just drives me crazy. <laughs> you know? There's, and that's not to say anything about right and wrong. I'm telling you something about me. There's something in me that I just go, I resent the rules. I resent the law. Leave me alone. Go bother someone else. That's that's very much in me. But it comes from a place of the rules are a burden. They're there to restrict me. It's tyrannical. On and on and on and on I could go. And I feel that across the board. On the other hand, there are people, other responses, they respond by keeping the law. It's a burden to keep and they, they respond by saying, challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. Now, I'm going I'm to obey everything to the, right to the letter, right to every, to every uh, what, even what it could mean. In fact, I'll make even more rules around this law to the point where now I know God has to bless me. Now, I, dem- I now, and usually know if you're one of these people, when life throws you a curveball or something unfair happens and you feel indignant toward God, how could you? I'm, I'm being so faithful. I go to church. I do all the right things. I pray and I do all this stuff. How could you allow this to happen to me? Uh, the famous, uh, I mean, the most famous illustration of this that Jesus ever told is in Luke chapter 15, and that's the prodigal, the prodigal son parable. And in the prodigal son parable, you've got, two, you've got a father and you've got two sons. One's an older son, one's a younger son. The younger son is the rebel. He's the free spirit. He's the one that doesn't like the rules. He wants to be his own man and blaze his own trail. And so when he's of age, he goes to his father and he says, give me my inheritance now and I'm just going to blow it. And his father says, okay, here you go. And he goes out and he does that. He blows it. He just full throttle off the cliff, goes for it. And then you've got this older son who's the rule follower. 
He stays at home. He takes care of the sheep. He does everything his father tells him to do. And you, you remember the story. The story is actually more about the older son than it is the younger. Because the younger son, he's in the pig pen. You know that it's, it's a famous, probably the most famous parable that Jesus ever told. And the son kind of has an awakening moment. He has a moment of realizing how foolish he's been. And he goes back to his father and he begs his forgiveness. And he says, Father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just let me work for you. Just hire me. Don't even acknowledge me as your son. You know the story. The dad's out looking for him, sees his son coming, runs to him. Before he can even get his I'm sorry speech out, his dad lunges on him, puts new clothes on him, slaughters the fattened calf and just has an absolute party that his son has returned. Meanwhile, older son's out doing chores out in the field. And he sees this party that his dad is throwing for his younger brother and he's indignant. And the dad realizes, where's my boy? Where's my, where's my older boy? And he goes out to find him in the field and he says, why don't you come and party with us? And the son says, because you're such a jerk. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, here I am doing everything right. I've done everything right. I, I've, I've been here every day. I get up when you tell me to. I do all the things that you tell me to do. And yet I can't even have a celebration with my friends and this loser younger son of yours that's squandered your wealth, that's ruined your reputation, that's done all of these horrible things and ruined his own life. He comes back battered and, and shameful and you throw him a party? Interesting, isn't it? See, both hearts are polluted. One just shoots out, one shoots out the other way, but both, and the older son is the one that ends up more angry at the father at the end, even though he's followed all the rules. Imagine, um, there's actually a famous pastor who uh, has a son who has uh, gone wayward and is, is now using his social media platform to blast his dad and to blast the church and all these other things. Imagine if you would, you imagine, I'll just, you can use my case in point. You imagine if Noble came to me one day, he's a teenager, and he said, Dad, I'm going to do everything you say. I will clean my room, I will, I will feed the fish, I will feed the cat, and I will clean the house, and I'll do everything you ever tell me to do. And I say, great, that's great, son. He says, but you will never have my heart, you sick person. I hate you. I'll follow all your rules, but I hate you. And I'm just going to follow him so you'll have to give me what's mine and what's owed to me. Is that a win for parenting on, for Mike? No. I say, no, no, no. I want your heart. See, this is what's going on here that Jesus shows over and over again. He's angry and grieved at the state of their hearts. Here are these Pharisees, these rule keepers, and he's mad because of what's in their hearts. And Jesus comes to both and says, you're lost. You need me. You need me to make it right. How does he make it right? Look at verse 28. Or excuse me, yeah, 27 and 28. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. How is he going to make this right? Um. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of his creative work, God rested. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And here Jesus 
comes. And he works. He's working very hard. Uh, in fact, in John it says, I work, I, I work because I see my father working. And I, it's during the day I have to keep working. Jesus has an amazing, amazing work ethic. What's he working towards? He's marching. In the creation, there's almost a march. You can really read it in, in um, Genesis 1. There is a, a rhythm to the text, especially in Hebrew. There's a rhythm that kind of snowballs and adds momentum and adds momentum and finally crescendos in the Sabbath day. And you can kind of find the same type of, of rhythm in the ministry of Jesus. He's marching towards something. There's famous scriptures that his, you know, like the, the, his face was set like flint towards Jerusalem. He was going somewhere. He knew where he was going. He knew what he was there to do. Every move was intentional. Towards a goal, towards a purpose. Holding his eyes on that goal. While it is day, I must keep working because night is coming. Especially in John, my day has not yet come, but it will. My day is yet, my hour has not yet come. There's, this, there's these literary markers that give us a sense of we're going somewhere when we read Jesus. And there he is. What's he saying here? There he is on the cross. What does he say? It is finished. Cease. Stop. Stop working. Stop striving. Enter into rest. The book of Hebrews says there remains a rest for the people of God. And that is what he's making. You see what he's doing? He's making it all right. In the creation, everything was peaceful. Everything was great. And then the curse happened. And um, work became a curse. Work is not a curse. Work has been cursed. We'll put it that way. See? Jesus enters in and takes on the curse and moves toward the cross. He shoulders it. He puts on humanity. All of the grime, all of the injustice, all of, all of it. And he marches it. Not the, the cross was not the only thing on his back. Your sin, my sin, the strife, the strife for value, the strife for, uh, for identity, and all the injustices will do to get there. He loaded it on him and he marched his way to the cross and he nailed himself to it and then he died and he said, Stop! And the universe went, Aah! Peace. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Now I command you, rest, rest, rest. This is really hard for us. I want to get practical for our last time, a little bit of time here. It's really hard for us in our culture. We live in a culture that it says produce, 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 produce. You are what you do. And, you, and, and we, in our culture, you're not allowed to be just good at something. You have to be exceptional, the best. Oh, the pressure, the pressure. And the monotony, and then, the, then so there's more than just that. Then there's the internal part. Constantly evaluating ourselves by how many likes we get, by how many people notice what we're doing 
by how many books we read or by how, how smart we are or what kind of degrees we have or whatever it might be. Constantly evaluating our self-worth all the time, all the time, all the time. On and on it goes. How much did you get done today? How much did I plug away at today? What kind of nice thoughts did I share on social media today? On and on and on and it goes, stop, Jesus says. Stop. Cease. Christians, there's still a rest for the people of God. We work from rest, not from a sense of poverty, not from a sense of um, scarcity, from joy, from rest. How? How do we do it? Um, I want to give you a practical challenge. I want to challenge you to bring the Sabbath back into your own life. A Sabbath day is a great way symbolically to remind yourself of what life is all about. This is something that Nicole and I do and Noble. Um, We can't do it on Sunday because we work on Sunday. So in our family, Friday night at dinner time, all the way to Saturday night at dinner time, we have a Sabbath where we practice. And I, I just read one, um, this one really great um, article about the Sabbath from a Jewish woman. She calls it a disciplined downshift. A disciplined downshift. Why is there discipline involved? Why is it a tradition? Because it's not easy to do. We tend to think, how do you stop? You, you stop working just by simply stop working. We tend to think it's that simple. And yet, those of you that have tried... It's not that simple, is it? I, you know, and here's the thing for, I mean, we could go through this, but the history of our country, one of the things that we have just recently lost was the art of the Sabbath. We used to be a country, and some of us still remember when stores were closed on Sundays. We still remember those, those times where you, it was kind of frustrating. You couldn't get a gallon of milk if you tried. You know, there's one obscure store across town that you had to drive to that would stay open a little later. But, you know, that, that, those days are gone now. It is go, 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 produce, 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 do, 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 do. And so, and the reason there's discipline and tradition is because it's hard. Um, in fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, it says we have to work to enter into rest. <laughs> How telling is that? It's true. It takes doing internal doing because the problem so i'll share a vulnerable story when i was at calvary Eastside, much bigger church um i used to think i was busy because of the church and i was busy because of the church part of it but i i had a complete blind spot i was always always busy and people my friends would always say man you're busy they must have you doing a lot of stuff over there and i, I was doing a lot of stuff over there but then i came here and i remember my friends called me and i was still busy 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 and they're like man you're busy. And I start, and I, it, you know, I realized, I think, I, I thought to myself, I think it's me. <laughs> I think it's something wrong with me. Not the external stuff. I think I'm bringing something. I'm making something that's supposed to be a blessing into a burden. And it's driving, 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 driving me. One way that I reverse that 
And this is why I mean it takes discipline. Come hell or high water on Friday night, we stop. Even when my sermon's not done, even when a paper is due for my school, even when I've got more things to do, it's an act of faith. We put it down and we stop. I'll tell you what, it's hard. It takes a couple hours for my, my, like my body's always the last one to show up for the party. I'm feeling anxious and I'm feeling, you know, and finally, I finally go, okay, fine. <laughs> you know, it's what we do. And it's, it's a wonderful time. It's a wonderful time. And what we do, the two rules, we rest and we worship. That's it. We have a family meal. We light a candle to symbolize that it's Sabbath time. We light a candle. We put our phones down. We have a family, we we splurge a little little bit. We either make a big meal or we go out, we uh, order out. We have a bit, but we're all around the same table. We hold hands and we pray and we thank God thank God for getting us through a week and we sit down and we enjoy. We enjoy each other. We enjoy the food. We talk. We talk about our week. We, we uh, talk about what we're grateful for. I'll sometimes scoot over to the piano and sing and we'll worship the Lord together, just the three of us. Um, we, you know, we, we, we rest, it's a time for community. We love on each other at the same time. Uh, Jewish rabbis um, encourage fun games. Um, Jewish uh, rabbis encourage marital sex between their, uh, in your married couples on Friday nights. It's a time for intimacy. It's a time for love. It's a time for joy. It's a time for peace. It's a time for enjoyment. It's a time for pleasure. It's a time for rest. That's what it's for. And I want to challenge you, do this, figure it out for you. Maybe for you it'll be a Sunday, I don't know. For us it works on a Friday, because Saturday after, uh, after our second meal, I start working again, I get ready for today. But I do it from this place of rest, we have fun, we re- sometimes we go on a hike, Sometimes we, um, yesterday we went to a pumpkin patch. We, you know, we do things that is, that is joyful and gives us life in our soul so that we can get back after it the next day from a place of refreshment and joy. And I want to encourage you to do that. Do it. Discipline yourself. Here's the thing. It will not be easy at first. It's hard. It feels counterintuitive, to say the least. But you will, be, you will be blessed. You will be blessed, I promise. And it's a reminder. Here's some things not to do. So there's some tips. Don't watch junk. Sabbath does not mean Netflix binging. Sabbath does not mean Netflix binging. Don't watch a bunch of junk on TV. You don't fill your mind with crap. We, we, watch, we watch things, but we watch things that are, that are innocent, we watch things that are going to make us feel good. We watch things that are going to be wholesome. We make sure it's a wholesome show. Sometimes we put on a sermon from a pastor that we enjoy, and we just let it uh, sink in. I give Nicole a massage just to let her know that I love her. It's usually the week. We don't really, sometimes we don't talk to each other an entire week or just to say, are you taking him or am I taking him or whatever. And we slow down on Friday. I tell her that I love her. We give each other a massage. We watch a show that we might like. We light a fire. We put up some candles. And we just sink in and enjoy the Lord and each other. 
We wake up late on Saturday I go and, and Richard gives me a massage just for me. <laughs> it's just a way to be with God's presence. And it's a way to intentionally remind myself that Jesus died to stop. And internally, I reject the thoughts of trying to find my identity through whatever it was I was doing through the rest of the week. It's an internal discipline that I have to reproach every week. Every week, things sneak in to which I'm trying to find some kind of feel better about myself for doing whatever it might be or being or, or reading or, or whatever it might be. And I go through that and I go, no, nope, not right now. Uh-uh. I remember him. I remember his, his grace. Rest. And then finally, invite someone to join you. Have someone over to your Sabbath meal. Invite a friend over on Friday night or Saturday night or whenever it is you do it. And enjoy them. Laugh with them. Play a game with them. Drink some wine. Relax. Enjoy each other. And if you make that a habit, an intentional habit, where you remind each other about what it's all about to be a Christian, the whole point of it is this Sabbath rest with God. Do you understand? That's the whole point of it. If you're not, especially in our culture, if you're not if you don't make for yourself a space to practice that, this culture is just going to swallow you up in the grind. It's just going to, it's like a, it's a current, that our culture is a current of, of utilitarianism and productivity. You step foot in that current, you're, it's going to just suck you away. Unless you make a space where you say, no, this is where I practice the realization that my life is from a place of rest. It's all about rest. Because Jesus said, on the cross, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord, I am um, so grateful for how you make things right. Lord, I... The cross straightens it all out. I tend to think that the law is there to curse and the law was bad and you came to get rid of the law, this bad, evil, bad, bad law that really appeals to me. But then I realized that you said, no, no, the law is my gift. I know that it's not a gift to salvation, but a gift of blessing, a gift for wisdom. A gift to flourish us, to fulfill us, help us to see it for what it is, and to see how you fulfilled it on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.